Welcome to Sober Nation FM, a podcast network dedicated to sharing experience, strength, and hope so that you may continue to live your best life of recovery. The Sober Podcast Network is brought to you by Sober Nation. Do you want to live a healthy, sober life? Sober Nation is the world's leading online recovery community. Find support, resources, stories of hope, and even an online treatment program at SoberNation.com. Live a happy life. Be comfortable in your skin and join the recovery movement. Once again, that's SoberNation.com. Now enjoy today's episode. The hell that I was in, I'd do anything to be better. I thought like a lunatic. You kind of just have like that little bit of hope that it will get better. You're going to make it. This began my surrender. I am a witness of my own growth. It's a life beyond your wildest dreams. And I just have to say, it works if you work it. My story, that's what I share. You're listening to Far From Finished, a weekly podcast where we share new real-life stories of hope and triumph told by the people who live them. Today's story comes to us from... My name is Chris. My sobriety day is... 428-2009. I was born and raised in Los Angeles, California, at the Queen of Angels Hospital. Um, initially, I was raised by my mom, but my mom had like serious mental illness. Um, we grew up in like uh, I would probably say like a lower middle class. Not like we definitely didn't have money. Um, we lived off like food stamps and stuff like that um and my mom had custody of me like the first probably actually I was in and out of custody I was in um initially I was in like a my mom was like unstable she had like mental illness uh what they call schizoaffective now but before it was like bipolar or schizophrenia they just didn't really know um, so she'd have like an episode and I went and lived in Anaheim with like, it was a family friend who was like a Nana. Uh, I kind of think that's where I, considering how dysfunctional I ended up becoming, I think that's where I developed a lot of like, uh, healthier coping skills. It was more like a family unit prior to that. It was like living with my mom. And then with them, I had to like get up early, go to school. We had like, a like an area where we'd like uh, grow like fruits and vegetables. And every weekend we would go do, um, what's it called? What are those things called where they sell used swap meet? It was a swap meet. We'd go there. And so Saturday we'd go buy stuff and Sunday we'd go to the uh, Orange County swap meet and sell stuff. So I like had to work at like a very young age and I was there for about a year. And then I went back home because my mom had stabilized for about a year or so and she kind of jumped the deep end I kind of already at a young age I had a knack for being a manipulative little shit for sure and um I would like fake being sick and I faked being sick one too many times and the true back in the days, I don't know if they have this still, but they had like truancy police and the truancy police showed up to our house. Like I got in trouble that time. My mom had like a major episode and my grandma had moved downstairs and they had this really dysfunctional, um, they had this really dysfunctional relationship and there was a lot of trauma. My mom had like, my mom was 
raped multiple times. She had like major identity issues. My grandma had my mom in the middle of segregation in Oklahoma, just to give a background of like how dysfunctional the relationship was. And my mom was half black and they moved out here to have my mom because in middle Oklahoma, that wasn't going to fly. And my grandma came from like a heavy, like predominantly like white Protestant Christian family. So I think there was like a lot of, they had this weird codependent relationship. And because the trauma my mom endured when she came out here, they thought like, oh, it's more loose in California. My mom faced like the same issues she probably would have faced in Oklahoma where people would spit on her. They call her a nigger, like, like a lot of stuff. She went to Hollywood High too, you know, which was in the kind of, I'd say like the melting pot of Los Angeles. So my grandma and her had this really toxic relationship. So as soon as my grandma moved downstairs from that apartment building, my mom kept moving away from her. And as soon as she moved away, my mom would get a little bit better. But then my grandma would follow. And as soon as my grandma had moved downstairs, my mom lost it off the deep end. She ended up losing that apartment. I ended up moving in with my grandma. Then my mom ended up moving in. Then the school found out and they put me in a foster home. And when I got thrown in the foster home, there was like, that's like the amended version. There was a bunch of other hospitalizations with my mom and stuff like that. When they moved in together, it was like probably the worst thing that happened for their relationship and probably the stability of the house at that time. And, um, my mom had, I, oh, I basically called out school sick one more time. The police showed up. They took me to school. And then, like, a couple weeks later, the principal had called uh, CPS, Child Protective Services. And they, I was outside eating lunch. I always remember this. It's like they talk about, like, trauma with kids. This is probably, like, my major traumatic, like, incident in my life, you know. Um, my... The principal came out. She was like, oh, come, come, come into the office. And I got in the office. I already knew what was going on. There was, um, there was, like, I already had a social worker because my grandma had gotten custody of me when my mom kind of lost her shit. And, uh, like, during that custody battle, I knew the, who the social worker was. And she was sitting in the office with a police officer. They took me to, um, they took me to, um, um, What's the place called? It was seven Acres. There was this place. It was like a group home. And it's interesting because I look back on like that instance and how traumatic it could have been. Actually, at this point, my grandma didn't even have custody of me. This is how she got custody of me. We were just all living in this house. And then um, I got sent to Seven Acres. And it was interesting because I always like as much as I look back on it and I thought like, oh, it was like this traumatic thing because it was like being snatched out of school, thrown into a group home. No one really knew where I was at. I kind of did trust the caseworker and I trusted the cop who was there. So at that point, it was like, well, fuck you guys. Like, can't believe you're doing this shit to me. But the thing that I learned was being in that group home, there was this little community of like kids who were all from like dysfunctional families. And it was from, you know, Compton to Calabasas to Van Nuys. It didn't matter where you were from in that instance, you know? And I always remember this one kid no one would screw with or talk to him at all because he had pink eye. 
And I was like, dude, I've seen like so many people. I was like, I was in like second or third grade, but I was like, pink eyes, like, like I've seen like pink eye all the time. And me and him ended up like creating like this really cool bond. And I think part of like the coping skill I learned within that dynamic was learning to lean out on other people because my mom and my dad, my dad was out of the picture. Um, he was like in prison and for selling drugs and stuff like that. And, um, I think I learned to rely on other people more so than I did my own family because I didn't really have, my grandma was pretty solid, but she was nuts for the, for the most part. Um, she was like a heavy, like born again, Christian. I rebuke you, you heathen, like throw holy water on you. It was like a super like uh, reactive type of environment. So I was like, didn't, it, there wasn't like uh I feel like stable emotional support, although she was a stable figure there in terms of like my grandma suited up and showed up. But I remember after leaving Seven Anchors, I remember being in court. I always remember for some reason looking out the court window and seeing like this area where all the cars drive up, whatever. But I remember sitting in court. It was my dad was trying to get custody of me. My mom was there. My aunts from Pennsylvania, I was talking to them. They were trying to get custody of me. I remember sitting in the court I don't remember exactly what the thought was, but it was along the lines of like, I can't really rely on these fucking people, you know, and not in like the sense of, you know what, fuck them. And I don't even know if that was really like the exact thought, but it was along the lines of like figuring out a way, I guess, to draw on more inner resources or more community because up until that point, there wasn't that, that what I was seeing on the other side of the room didn't symbolize, um, or wasn't representative of like any type of stability. I think for the most part, my family is pretty crazy. And then ultimately what I ended up having, I my dad temporary custody at this point. So I lived with my dad for a year. My aunt came out cause he had a good job at the VA. He was selling drugs and stuff like that, but he hadn't gotten clipped yet all over the place um and i ended up living with him for a year and one of my aunts came out and it was actually it was actually probably the coolest experience i had because my dad was nuts in the sense that he just let me run the streets and i was pretty young but i had like two friends as long as i was with these two friends like i could do whatever i want it taught me to be like auto autonomous and stuff like that and rely on these two dudes though again i was still relying on community because my dad was kind of checked out drinking and smoking weed all the time um so i kind of leaned on them and eventually that situation played out my grandma ended up getting full custody of me i went from hollywood to the san fernando valley and um i basically ran amok i kind of did when my grandma was older my grandma was old school from oklahoma and I had developed a bit of an attitude, like, in Hollywood. And she wasn't – she was able to control it to a certain extent. I remember one time my mom – I remember my mom was hitting me with a belt. And my grandma was laughing about it. And she took me down the street and she ripped this branch. She, she ripped this branch off the tree. And she said, I don't remember what she said, but the next time I did something out of line, I got hit with the, the switch. They don't do that anymore. You're going to go to jail if you get hit, you hit your kid with a switch. 
But I remember getting hit with the switch and laughing at first when it hit me because it's a, the belt hits, you can wrap it around you. And I remember the, the switch hitting and I started laughing. And then it took like about, you know, two or three seconds and I was crying. And I, I mean, for, to be honest with you, I kind of learned when she was around to not engage in certain behaviors um, because of that. And I remember you hear the through the air, just the of the 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 switch uh, flying through the air kind of taught me a little bit at that time, like to kind of kick back around grandma. But then I kind of became a little nuts, and I started to branch out of the house. And I remember I found this. I had one friend who lived down the street, and then a couple who lived down the street. We live on the street called Sixth Street, and Sixth Street. It wasn't in. We didn't live in the hood. We lived in Burbank. It was like a suburb area. Um, but all of our friends were from broke home, broken homes. Like it was always a single mom raising two dudes or one guy. And then at this point it was my grandma raising me and I had an older brother who we, we were considered half brothers, but if you talk like he's my brother, you know, and, um, he, but he was like 10 years older than me. So he was like off doing his thing. He was kind of a mentor, not really. Um, and then I found this group of friends and that became like what my family was. I didn't like in terms of like the value system that any kind of value system that was going to be instilled in me in that house was going to be dysfunctional to begin with. And the values that I looked up to, whatever would have been instilled in me at home would have been undermined at that point by what my friends were doing. And the common bond that we all shared is we were all kind of didn't know where to fit in. You know, and we all like to destroy shit. We had this crew, it was called FSU, and then fuck shit up, and we would go around, and like those long fluorescent bulbs, there's none in this room, the long fluorescent bulbs, I would go through parking lots and pull them all out, and then go in the parking lots where it was like, where it would make a lot of noise, and throw them, and it would go, and we get chased, and my best friend's uh, dad was a Burbank cop, and um, we would get chased by the police. And I, you know, I used to think, I'm like, I can't, like nowadays I'll see people, I don't know why you run from the police. I ran, I, I did, I like literally forget. I don't remember usually until I'm like telling my story. I used to run from the police all the time, but I ran from the police because I knew every time we got caught, we were going to get away. I was like, it was a different time, I think, back then too, where you could kind of get away with like dumbass crimes and like you're not going to jail because I was like, anywhere between the ages of 10 and 14, like the cops are like, oh, you're just like a little rambunctious kid, like get the fuck out of here. You know, so we started off, I always like to say like the first thing I like was addicted to was like a sensory addiction. Like I liked destroying shit. And like, like I used to roll, I remember this police officer, the police officer who ended up putting me in the foster home actually. He stopped me in an alley one day with a rookie cop and he goes, he goes, you see Chris here? He's like telling the cop, he's like, you remember him. Anytime you see him, you should probably stop him. And uh, I go, what, what do you tell him that for? He goes, Chris right here, he likes to roll tires down alleys into like major intersections and cause car accidents. And I was like, dude, I don't know what you're talking about. He's like, you think we don't know about that shit? Like, and that's exactly what we used to do. We used to push shopping carts and roll. I mean, now I look back on it and I just didn't care what was going on. I just didn't understand like what that could have done. 
like are going to kill the family. And the point, I was just like rolling shopping carts down the street. I find tires were the best because they would get a ton of momentum and you'd watch it bounce and hit some person's car and the noise it would make and be like, okay, like this is like, this is kind of what I'm into, you know? And then, you know, I got in the middle school and I remember, so like, I was, I I had an identity crisis at one point. So like, here it is. My brother had a different dad. His dad was Filipino. My mom was, my grandma was super white. And then I was like this really white person. And then my mom was kind of dark. My brother was dark. And I remember like Easy e real Compton City Gs. And then my brother had Malcolm X all over the room. So that was my peer role model. And I remember when like Bone Thugs and Harmony came out, I would roll around with a backpack. And I, I look at like 12 year olds now. I don't know. I used to go to a liquor store and get people to buy us 40s. I don't know how someone buys a 12 year old a 40 now. I, I, I'm blown away when I see 12 year olds now. And maybe they've gotten bigger because of hormones in food. But I would, I don't know. We would used to get people to buy 16 40 ounces of oldie and I'd roll around. And I remember one time my brother had a cross color jacket with Malcolm X. It was the famous Malcolm X picture where he's pointing his head up to the sky and he used to take it and wear it. I was like this white kid rolling through Burbank. It was like the, it looked like a confused ass kid. You know what I mean? And I'm like rolling through there with my Walkman and like a, backpack with like three four forties listening to real Compton City G's like I'm a gangster twelve year old in Burbank, California drinking in John Muir Middle School, like what? You know, that was I just didn't know. Like I was just trying to emulate what my brother was doing, what the music I was growing up around was. So I was just like trying to figure out where I fit and everyone I was around kinda I mean the black thing that I had going on, everyone was like Chris you're kind of like, I don't know, what the hell are you kind of things going on, you know? Um, it's kind of like looking back on it, it's kind of funny. Um, but like, I remember the first time I had a drink, it was in the middle of drama in middle school. I drank a 40 of oldie, and I was, I remember my friend, this dude, got completely butt naked drunk, and I remember being like, I didn't drink to see this shit happen. Like, I just wanted to get drunk. Like, you didn't need to do all that shit. I, I, to this day, I can still see him tearing his pants off and, like, was screaming because he was like, oh, no, and tripping over his own legs onto the floor. And I was like, I even said, I was like, dude, you're a real. Like, I remember being like, you're like, what the hell are you doing? I don't want to see you naked because you got drunk. You don't even get your, uh, naked drunk. And that was, like, the that was definitely where it all started was, like, all the – Bone thugs in harmony. And like I wouldn't smoke weed. That was in like sixth or seventh grade. And I would like not smoke weed. And I remember people started getting weed and I was like, nah, I just drink 40s, you know? And I shedded like the whole cross colors thing, like trying to emulate my brother. And I think it was more because I was getting sucked into like the peer group I was around and um like became like the skater stoner kid in ninth grade i didn't smoke weed or do anything so i would just drink every weekend a 40 a couple 40s of oldie or mickey's or king cobra that was like that was like the jam back then like a dollar 49 i think it was for like a 40 you know and you like for a 12 year old you're dusted off a 40 so it started there and then 
I remember getting into high school, and this is when everything turned bad. Ninth grade is when, like, you know, like, it was just like, okay, kids being silly, drink a 40. I remember we were at this chick's house. I, like, drank a 40 and vomited all underneath her couch. I was, like, laying on my side. Like, this is how, like, people die. And, like, I projectile vomited all underneath her mom's couch. And, um, like, ninth grade, I remember what it was. It was, like, when you... I feel like I feel it's like a normal experience for a lot of people is like, I don't know about today, at least growing up, like if you're an 80s kid or maybe 90s, late, early 90s, like putting five, like putting five on a sack. That was a song. I got five on it. And you put five on a sack and then like maybe you roll a blunt and like now there's like nine people around when they were like four for this $20 gram. And then like you put five on it and you got like two hits and you're like, why did I put five on it for all these other freeloaders to smoke my weed? And on top of it, like we were poor. Like, like, like people will say, I always laugh because people will be like, Oh, you lived in Burbank. There's no roaches in Burbank. Like I woke up in the middle of the night with a cockroach doing the electric slide across my forehead at least a hundred times in my life. Like it wasn't, like, people tell me there's no roaches in Burbank. I'm like, you don't know what you're talking about at all. So, like, we were, like, this was, like, I remember back in the day. It's funny because food stamps, they have, like, EBT credit cards now. I remember when food stamps were in a book and you had to tear out food stamps. And there was, like, a, the bronze one was, like, a dollar, the blue, and there was a green one. I think green was, like, the good. it was, like, almost you got, like, some money. And I remember – um like being super poor and the reason why I was bringing it up is because I, I would save up like three days to get that $5 on the sack. I was the one freeloading off other people during the other times, you know, but then I put that five on the sack and it was gone. And I'd be like, dude, like I just waited like two or three days for this money. And like, that was not really worth it. Like, why don't I just, why don't I just sell weed, you know? And I remember we had a, there was a cohort two years above us. And we, the, that was kind of who we, like, we had a group of friends. It was like FSU and this crew was PLT, which was Platoon and Outcast. And we looked up to these dudes and they were like, in terms of, like, I, 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 I idealized all these guys. Like, I looked up to them like, that, that's like, you know, what I want to be when I grow up. You know, like those dudes are cool. You know, they were the older dudes and they were all selling drugs. You know, when I was a ninth grader, they were 11th graders and they were all selling drugs. And because so during that whole time when we were all from families from broken homes, that crew of guys was still two years older. This was in fifth grade at the time when I started hanging out with those other guys. Actually, it was second grade. Those guys were still around and we had all grown up together, like literally like just these two whole cohorts of people that were just you know, stringing along through time. And they kind of, like, looking back on it, they, like, utilized us in the way I would have utilized some young, impressionable men. And, you know, they were, like, consignment. Here's, like, an ounce of weed. And, like, an ounce of weed, if you sell it all in dimes or grams, like, you'll make, like, for me, like, 200 bucks, that's, like, a substantial amount of money when you're, like, 14 years old you know and you're in high school and like people are like who's got the weed and then like with weed like I know someone who's got coke and acid and and it just it started there like I was like a I used to like go on like 
I used to go on like I swear to God like six mile walks just smoking weed. I was like I'm like, and it wasn't like on some. I just used to like to walk. I would walk and just smoke weed all through high school. So school in the morning, I'd get up, I'd want, I'd light, light a split on the way to school, smoke, go to school, and then I was just like kind of a. I was a degenerate fuck off for school in school 100%, but like in middle school, I became super disrespectful and defiant. And then when I got to high school, I was like, that shit didn't get me nowhere. I'm just going to fly under the radar and be like, cool, you know, but everyone who I rolled with was going through their phases and people were kind of like, my whole thing was like, I, if I ever got caught for some shit, I was like, I'm not. I'm going to just deal with the consequence fast and get this done with so I can kind of keep doing what I'm doing. So I tried to stay out of trouble as much as possible. And like, I was like a low profile selling weed, like didn't, they were like, I had like friends who would like sell drugs in front of teachers at times and then get busted for it. You know? So I was just like, I, I was trying to present myself as like this dude who like moved through multiple different. And I was, I'd be like one day I could hang out with the jocks one day I could hang out with the skaters and I was a skater. The next I'm hanging out with like like some gang members from like Burbank Thresse or something like that. Like I was just moving around from like group to group to group to group. And um, it was all just because of like, you know, selling drugs and feeling like this is like, there's like a saying in like 12 step meetings like I had arrived. I guess if I hadn't arrived, I had an arrived moment. It was like me selling drugs and having people look up to me and like doing the whole party scene and um you know high school I would say was probably very much a blur I got I ended up getting kicked out of I think it kicked out they told me basically in high school like you kind of need to leave and it was weird because when I left I, I got kicked out of middle school actually they went for making terrorist threats I remember I said <laughs> I was like I'm gonna blow up the school and then like I remember sitting home suspended and I was like cool like I'll be back at school in like five days and I remember sitting at home and like watching Columbine happen while I was suspended I was like yeah I'm probably not going back to school now so I got kicked out of that school but I realized when I got kicked out of school there like I kind of got rewarded because the school they put me in continuation school was filled with people who were like me and were kind of fucked up but we got out of school four hours earlier and our, the rest of our day was, like, open. So I was, like, cool. Like, this wasn't even, like, a bad deal. So then I went to high school, and, like, I kind of flew under the radar. But I fucked off schoolwork. I just couldn't, like – so they, they came to me, like, I think it was it was my the beginning of 10th grade year. So ninth grade, I fucked up. And then 10th grade year, they're, like, hey, you're going to have to just bounce in 11th grade because you're not going to graduate. And the only way you're going to graduate is if you go to summer school for, like, the next three years. And I was, like, that, I'll tell you what's not going to happen because I was, like, in the middle of my substance abuse. And I was, like, this is definitely not going to happen. And I, I got put in this continuation school. When I got to continuation school, it was actually the best thing that happened to me because the teachers understood that we were kind of like this disenfranchised youth and kind of thrown away. But I got out of, out of school another three hours earlier and I was able to listen to music in class because a lot of people, it was like ADD was like huge and they're like, you could just listen to music and get your schoolwork done. And like, I was like, cool, this is like the best situation that's ever happened. But what ended up happening was everyone who did drugs ended up getting thrown in the school. And I remember this dude, 
Javier used to bring, he'd just be like, dude, I found these pills in my lunch and he would just give me pills. I have no clue to these days, to this day, what the fuck he gave me. I would take this, I would just take handfuls of this shit, and I remember one day I was like, seeing blue and green and shit, and it wasn't, because I, I don't know if it was like what I was hallucinating, I don't even know what he gave me. And um, that's where, like, it, it, things kind of got really uh, dicey, for sure. Um, and I became like a heavy pill user. My mom was back home living there and she had um, disc disease and degenerative disc disease and herniated disc. And at this point, this was before Oxycontin was like, it was before Heath Ledger died because like once Heath Ledger died, like shit kind of got blown up. I remember like in terms of you being able to go to doctors and like get scripts because he kind of, he was like, I remember once that happened, it was like, it kind of, in my mind at that time, fucked everything up. Um, so it was very, the access to pills was very easy. I used to steal my mom's Oxycontin. And at this point I was eating, I was probably taking, she had 20 milligram pills. I was probably, I mean, I was 15 years old and I was taking 80 I was taking five of them at a time and then going to sports games. And I I, I probably had like a, a substantial tolerance like in 10th grade and I would go to school high. To be honest with you, I don't know if I would have made it through high school without opiates because it was the only thing that kept me in my seat long enough because I would sit, I'd take like a pill and then I'd go in the class and just zone out and do my work. And I ended up doing a year and a half of work in a year. And I got back to college, to high school, and I graduated. And, you know, at this point, I was kind of tied in the people who were, like, dealing with gang members. And, like, it wasn't like they were gnarly. They were just, like, little white skater kids who sold, like, copious amounts of weed and pills, you know. And ultimately, you know, I ended up... I had a really good friend, this guy Rowick, his name was Mike. Mike, Mike kind of took me under his wing. And Mike had this, uh, like he kind of told me one point, like I remember I had idealized the crew life and like where I wanted to be was like, I think at a certain point I kind of felt like it was a good idea to do like a prison term because that would kind of turn me into what a man was which was, I mean, looking back on it was delusional. And Mike kind of I shook that out of me and was like, dude, like all this shit. It was, at the time, I mean, he, he was uh, 19, 20 years old. He was before his time. Like in terms of like where his mentality was, he was like, he knew everything, kind of had a shelf life. And we were kind of living out like this youth period. And he was like, none of this shit's going to last. You know, so me and him... High school ended, and me and Mike were like selling drugs, and I had this this connection who would get. I was I was getting probably three thousand Norco's and pills and all in Valium, Xanax uh, a week. I mean, we were at that point. It was like there there wasn't. I don't. I look back on it now in terms of seeing like what pills have become. Like at that point, I don't think like Norco's were like I was were a dollar or a pill or something like that. Street value now they're like eight dollars a pill, you know. So I'm looking looking back on it. We're like, okay, cool. We're like selling these pills, like whatever. And I remember there was this point where Mike, we were in this house, my homie Dave's back house, and he said, 
you know, we kept getting sick from opiate withdrawal. I didn't know what it was opiate withdrawal right now. At that point, we just called it pissing out our ass. You know, you're getting sick, you're starting to piss out your ass. It's, you've got to get something to feel better. And I remember at that point, um, Mike was like, he was like, dude, we got to stop doing this shit. He had ended up in some like drug diversion class and he handed me this relapse prevention paper. And I have the piece of paper to this day. Um, and like six weeks later, I went to a party with him and with a whole fight broke out. We were going to go to this hotel and I was like, we're driving back to my house because I had all the drugs at my house. I kept all the drugs in my house. We didn't keep anything at Mike's house because Mike was super paranoid and I lived with my grandma and no one's going to raid the house with my grandma. And we go back to my house and I was like, we get there and I'm like, you know what? I don't want to go to this party. This, this hotel, bro, I'm just going to go fucking home and go to bed. He's like, all right, bro. And he's like, can I get my oxys? I was like, sure. I ended up giving them to him. And um, it was the weirdest thing because he walked away and he came. He's like, hey, I love you, bro. And we had already said that. It wasn't like there was like some weird thing like about that. But he kissed me on my forehead and he left. It was like, this, no, that's never happened, you know. And... You know, next morning I had a call from this dude, Kicks, and Kicks had been in and out of youth authority. Like, majority of this guy's life was spent in institutionalized in, like, hard um, jail, uh, you know, prison, stuff like that. And he goes, he goes, Mike's dead, you know? And I remember that shit fucking me up. Like, I, and I, and I, and it's interesting because I stopped doing pills for a while, right? And I remember being like, I'm sober. I'm sober. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not doing, I'm not doing pills or I'm not doing opiates at all. And um, like drinking, I remember we had this funeral, like whatever, a week later or something like that. And I remember like being at the funeral and being like just totally like everything was happening around me, but I didn't really know what's going on because a lot of people were blaming me for his death. And then people were talking, you know, that it's my fault, blah, 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 blah. Which maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. They ended up finding out he had a heart condition. Definitely the drugs didn't help. But I blamed myself. I still to this day, to a certain extent, blame myself, even though I know that's not real. Um, he basically... I basically just like went home after that funeral and I remember the only way I could cry was I had to drink. It was a four pack of Boddington's and a six pack of Newcastle. I always remember. I was like sitting there drinking. It was the only way I was able to let everything out and I fucking lost it. I broke down. I don't know if I've ever broke down like that actually ever in my life since. Um, and I was like, oh shit, like fuck. And I just kept drinking and drinking and sure enough, like seven months went by. And the doctor thing was big. Like you could go, I had a friend who had this, it was Dr. Bass. He's since been busted and killed. There's Dr. Aslan, Dr. There were like literally doctors all over the valley in Hollywood. And everyone was like going to like six different doctors. The DEA wasn't monitoring shit. And I was like, dude, I can make a lot of money on this. I think I was still selling pills even after Mike died too. I didn't stop doing that because it was my source of income. It was the only thing I knew. I never was able to hold down the job. And, uh, you know, yeah, there's, I started getting back into that and sure enough, I'm back on pills. Pills graduated to heroin. And, um, 
I think what ended up happening was like I kept doing the drug thing. Mike was a major incident that died. My house ended up getting raided the first time. And I got through, like, I will go, like I said before, like, I will do everything I need to do so I can continue using drugs. So they gave me a diversion program. I completed the diversion program. And I had, like, a month until I got off probation. And I went out drinking. And then the next morning I woke up. But I had drank so much the night before. I got in my car and hit three poles and two parked cars. Thank you for listening to part one of this Far From Finished story. Don't forget to come back to hear the rest in part two of this real-life experience in recovery.